You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello and welcome to the Edgy Salon podcast, recorded on the lands of the Wadjuk people of the Noongar Nation, to whose elders, past, present and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Natalitsky and today I can't wait to get into conversation with my guest, Dr Victoria Shawunmi. Victoria is an Associate Professor in Education at the University College of London. She's worked with colleagues all over the world, including North America, Brazil, Pakistan, China, Germany, South Africa and the Caribbean. Her research and advocacy focuses on gender and educational leadership and on black young women's experiences of education. She's been principal investigator and co-investigator on a number of important projects, including the UK Womankind Project, centred on women and violence, another project exploring the identities of non-white women in senior leadership positions across sectors in England, a project on gender and leadership in higher education in Pakistan, and one on coaching and mentoring black minority ethnic women leaders. Welcome, Victoria. Thank you. Let's start the conversation. So as I look at your body of work, some of the through lines that I see there are identity, voice, well-being and community. And one thing that I, I notice and that I really admire is the way that you work to engage diverse communities in conversation and collaboration. So for instance, the 2020 town hall, uh, virtual town hall that you chaired for University College London, which was attended by almost 900 people. So I'm wondering if you can describe what it is that drives you and your scholarship and advocacy and, and how you go about initiating those kinds of opportunities for dialogue and collaboration. Thank you, um, Deborah. I think that's a really good starting point, really. Um, and also, thank you very much for inviting me to be on this podcast with you. So, um, I think one of the things about myself is that I'm really interested in conversation and not just conversation, but deep conversation. And it's something which I've always done as a a young child, really, is to ask the question and to ask the question in a way that enables people to stop and think about the question that I'm asking. And it sounds very simple, very simplistic. The expectation would be that everybody asks questions. But it's a critical question. So even from a, a young child um, living with German Jewish parents outside of, you know, in, in the West Country, which is rural area of England, I asked the question. And one of the questions I always remember asking my adopted mother at the time was, um, why did God make me this colour? And it starts off with that. And I must have been about three to four years of age asking that question which came about when I first started the village school, which is in Somerset, Netherstory, Somerset. And so that, I think, was the inquiring aspect of who I was. And I was actually quite an intellectual child, so I wasn't somebody who asked the question to be an insulting way of looking at it. I really was interested in the philosophical concept, so why? Why does this happen? So I don't know whether that helps to understand why why I do those. And so... In doing that, it's so important for me to connect with people. The connection of people through questioning is part of who I am. And so that's what drives you. So conversation, questioning, seeking to understand and really thinking things through. I'm just thinking about your reflections as a child had me thinking about Maya Angelou's writing and books actually. But uh, the other thing that I've noticed in your work that I feel quite a resonance with is that 
desire to share a diversity of voices and stories and lived experiences. And that's certainly something that I try and do in my work. So in the books that I edit and in my citation practices and in my recruitment practices, but I found that that's really often imperfect and that there's you know, challenges, barriers, emotional labor. There's a whole bunch of reasons why people might not feel comfortable sharing their stories or it might not be appropriate for them to share their stories Um, or they might there might be a reason that they can't be a voice in that particular platform. So what are your reflections about how we invite, include, elevate a range of voices and a range of people in education, but also overcome some of those barriers and challenges that people would find in sharing their stories? Yeah, I I think that's a really good point you've touched on as well. Sharing stories, getting people to share their stories is, is really, really important because there's so much difference. There's so many differences that the world finds it a challenge in itself. The uncomfortableness is being able to make people or to enable people to feel comfortable with sharing their stories. So myself and you speaking together, you as a white female, me as a black female, and being able to just have a conversation and having that conversation, which has been set up from the beginning, that there are going to be some differences which we were going to be talking about but there are also going to be some connections which can make the conversation be a really deep and rich conversation so the challenges could be that when we think about class now the perception of class as in the UK class is a very big uh, discussion in, in in the UK I came from my background is very much um, growing up in a very upper class background Now, for some people, that's a challenge in itself. And so they're not quite sure what the issue is, but perhaps their colleagues or people may think that what I'm, you know, I'm trying to pretend something. So I'm pretending to be, whereas I'm not pretending, this is who I am. So going back to the question which you just asked, it is really very quickly trying to make the connections with people and reading the landscape. So reading the landscape and also to read in the room with what's actually going on and who you've got in the room. And I think that's something I'm really quite good at. And knowing that somebody is uncomfortable, but feeling that uncomfort and then and then working through it, thinking, okay, this is what I need to be able to do to be able to ensure that person is feeling comfortable to be able to share. So let's keep going with this uh, theme of discomfort. Uh, <laughs> as you, you noted, you know, you're a black woman, I'm a white woman, and I know that being a white woman means that I experience probably invisible privilege because of my race and that there are benefits that I probably don't even know that I experience in my life. And I was really interested to read about, but not yet to read, your new book that you've co-authored with Carol Tomlin called Understanding and Managing Sophisticated and Everyday Racism. And it shares stories of everyday racism from the lived experiences of black women and it explores the interplay between white and black women. So I'm really interested in how you define that concept of sophisticated racism. What what is that? And also the relationship between white and black women and the, I suppose from my point of view, the role that white women play in systemic and everyday racism. And as a white woman myself, what is it appropriate for me to do and to not do, to be and to not be, to what does it mean when people say allyship and solidarity? 
help me. <laughs> <laughs> that's a big ask there. That's a really, that's a really big ask. So let's look at the, the um, sophisticated racism and why have I even bothered to do to put that together? I mean, I I did a lot of the con- I did the conceptual work in the book. So six chapters I wrote were were my chapters really. Um, so sophisticated racism is something which I named as sophisticated because growing up in a in a rural area like I did and then desperately wanting to come to a big city i.e. London it was very different I grew up with very rawness of racism and what I've learned to understand which is still taking me time it's still in progress is the racism that one experiences in somewhere like London is very different the policies, the procedures, the this and the that to tick the box to say that they've done this and so the issue is with the person is very different to the kind of racism you experience, which is more blatant and not covered up is in, in, in a rural area. And so I suppose that sophistication is insidious. It's very insidious and it's entwined with class. But it's also, it's also put together in a way that if you're not careful, you would start to really, really believe that, 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 that there's something in the air, but you only you can see what's in the air. And it is so sophisticated that one isn't innate, they're not naming it because you can deal with the stuff, you know about the name calling, you know about, yes, you need to do positive action, affirmative action, all those types of things. But it's the fact that, you know, things get, things continue to be happening around the corner or, you know, when you dig a bit deeper under the carpet, you can see something merging out. So it's those types of things. Now, how does that play out in the workplace? Well, it plays out in the workplace for many different ways. And one of them is, as I mentioned just a moment ago, about the, the various policies and procedures and um, so-called opportunities that people are able to have. And even though you've got procedures, policies, whatever, different things which are there to kind of counteract any kind of discrimination, to make it watertight so nothing ever happens, which is never going to be like that, People still revert to recruiting and interviewing people which look like themselves, progressing and developing people that look like themselves, providing opportunities with people that look like themselves, but not just look like themselves, that will fit the narrative of a minority, a model minority. So somebody which will be able to keep what I would say the master of the house wants us to have or to be and if you're a bit not if you don't want that and you've got a voice of your own and you're going to push back then you're pushing against the sophisticated of racism and you will find that your time in the workplace or in the educational establishment i.e as a student will be very bumpy very very bumpy and not the easiest of ways of doing things and I think I was called at one stage when I was at a dinner one time, sitting with a guy, and he said, you know, you're a rebel without, you, one could describe you a rebel without a cause. And what, he, I, what I would say he meant by that is that I could easily have had an easy life, which was very 
class-orientated, nice different things, material material things, no worrying about certain aspects of issues to do with discrimination and all things like that, and just really shut, close my eyes on it. But I didn't. And so sophisticated racism is that racism that you might find in corporate culture and urban culture, which is less visible. It's about assumptions and culture and decisions behind the scenes and normalisation of, of who gets access to different things, but it's not blatant and outright. It's not something you can always put your finger on. Yes, absolutely. Insidious was the word that you used. Yes, yes. So, for example, one of the examples in the book um, I give, I do a, a kind of a narrative where a white guy has been um, appointed and he's got a group of people which he's leading and a black woman has been in a, a kind of a position of power for quite a while and he finds that he's got to work with this particular individual and uh, he, he's very ambitious, this person, and his leader has put him there to work with this black, this black female and she feels that he's he, he, he's got something he doesn't like about her. And he mm. talks to his leader and says, I really don't want, you know, I'm finding her working with her is rather difficult. And, I, you know, what, what can we do? So the person says, don't worry, leave it with me, dot, 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 right? Now, remember, this black female has been there for a long time. She's a very established person and knows the score of the organisation. But this white guy, who's very ambitious and has been put into another role, finds that the black woman is getting in his way. So he talks to his leader, and the leader says, don't worry, I'll, lead it. I'll leave it with me. Leave it with me. It's things like that. Mm. And so what about what you talk about in the book in terms of that interplay between black women and white women, I'm assuming in the workplace? What's that relationship about or what is it that you talk about in the book with everyday racism and sophisticated racism and those, that part of it? Yeah, that that chapter is called The Tangled Web. And I think it's a really exciting chapter. And it really kind of talks about the interplay between white women and black women and what took place in the plantation house and how that has transformed, transformed itself into the workplace. And it's, it, it is controversial because if we think about what happened in the plantation house with the plantation owners and what they've done with black women, particularly black women, where the plantation owner brutalised black women um, in all different way, forms and also brutalised black men. But the black women ended up having forced pregnancies and children being ripped away from their bodies. Now, the white woman stood and had to adhere to this and was part of it as well. However, her needs were also not being met because here her husband or her father, whoever it was, or brothers were going there and brutalising black women. And of course, her own femininity is kind of left hanging. So she then deals with, you know, entices a black male. So of course, many black men were murdered because they were caught in situations with white women. And so over the time, the white woman has demonized, as, as demonized uh, white women have demonized black women because of much of what's taken place and hasn't really been, we've, we haven't really had that conversation in the open 
about what's happened. So it's this kind of legacy of what's happened within the plantation house and how the plantation owner's white woman has experienced their partner, their husband, whoever it was, brutalizing, but involving themselves in sexual activities, rape, etc., with black women. And so how, how does that then transfer into what you would see as a modern workplace? Let's think about policies and let's look at the fact of gender. Let's look at gender and um, gender policies. Now, gender policies, we all want to embrace them. We all want to brace, embrace gender policies. So here I am, let's use me, here I am. I'm so excited that I'm going to get involved with the gender policies in the workplace. So a job gets advertised and it's something to do with gender. So you knock on the door and you say, look, here I am, open the door. And opens the door and it's a, a woman who is already doing work on gender. And they realise straight away that they've got to share their resources with a black woman. Now, the issue is, here I am as a woman coming to work with you. And I think, this is fantastic. However, it's not so fantastic because you're not just sharing the resources about being a woman. You're also sharing the resources of being a black woman. The resources are already scarce for women. And now you're putting it together because you want those resources to look at you as a woman who is black as well. So you then start to get that intersectional approach. And of course, gender across Europe is mostly really looking at white women. And it's only more recently when you've been able to knock on the door and say, well, you need to look at what's happening with black women. And that's part of that di discourse of recognizing and understanding that we too are women. Yes, people might say, well, you go over there because we're doing stuff about race. But that falls through the gaps. It's about we are also wanting to do stuff which looks at women's issues, where you're standing as well. That's where, that's where the interplay starts to develop. Now, of course, in a few minutes we have, I can't explain the whole of the chapter, but I think that chapter is called The Tangled Web. And also the chapter on sophisticated racism, I think, are really important. I mean, certainly in my work, I explore identity as perceived selves in flux or how we think of ourselves and project those senses of ourselves to ourselves and to others. And so I think identity is just so important. And so what advice or questions might you pose to white women in the workplace and education or white women in educational leadership in terms of what they should be thinking about or or questioning themselves about, or what sort of actions they might be taking or not taking? Yeah, I, I don't think it's a should. I think it's a reflection. I, I think there's an opportunity, given the last few years which have happened, whether we start with 2013 with Black Lives Matter when it started to emerge, or whether we start with Me Too campaign and what's emerged out of that, or even the resurfacing of Black Lives Matter, and also I think also, which adds to all of this, the COVID-19 and the pandemic across the world. I, I think it's not about should. I think it's about um, critical reflection on what's going, who has, who has benefited and what needs to be done. So it's not a should. It's about that aspect of reflection. And it's not about, oh, 
how can I, how can, what, what can I do to, you know, I'm really desperate and I need to feel, I need to feel that I'm doing something for you. Well, it's not about for you. It's about with me. It's about with me. So I think that's the way, really, the critical reflection, like you're doing at the moment, Deborah. And, and I think that's, that's where we stand. The conversation and critical reflection. Yes. I do have one more question about this book, which is a, an absolute side question, but I'm, I don't know where, I'm interested in where it's going to go. And that is about the cover of the book, because on the cover of the book is a black swan. And I've got a connection with that because the black swan is a regional symbol of Western Australia, where I'm from. And I think it's also regional to maybe where, near where you grew up or somewhere in England. Uh, but I'm wondering what is the uh, significance of, of the black swan on the cover? Yeah, that's a, that's an important question. I think it's a fundamental question. For me, I've always described myself as a swan when I go to an organisation, and especially the organisation which I'm in at the present moment. And it was I was at a meeting a few years back and said, do you describe yourself as a swan in many things and presentations, but you need to describe yourself as a black swan. And at the time, I wasn't really familiar with black swans. Now, I live near the country now. I live on the suburbs of London. And so there's lots of forests and lakes and things like that. And I saw my black swan about two years ago. And it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. So the black swan for me is represents women, black women, on the water. Because if you look at the water, I chose that. The water is very, very calm. And the swan's on the top. And it's a beautiful black swan. That water, to me represents sophisticated racism because underneath that water is the murkiness is all the stuff but on top is the swan gliding on the top and either side you've got the mountains as well and you can see down in the book you go through you can see through the pathway of the water so it means a lot but the the, the short question answer to your question is that um, I was in Ohio in November and I, I was asked to, you know, put together what I wanted for the cover of the book. So I said to my, I said to my 17-year-old daughter, who was um, in England, and I said, oh, what would you think about a swan on the front of the book cover? And she said, oh, cool, cool, cool. I said, what do you mean by cool? I don't understand what that word means, cool, you know. She said, well, mum, you don't see many swans on the front of a book. I said, exactly. You've answered my question. So that's why I'm going to put a swan on the front of my book. <laughs> so it's got, a, it's got a personal connection. It's, it's rare. It's elegant. It's navigating the murky waters calmly. And there's hope in terms of where it's going exactly. towards the mountains. Am I exactly. Yes. On the right track? It's exciting. Why put something miserable on the front of a book? I mean, I, I think a swan is beautiful. And of course, there are websites where they use the black swan as something deep and dark and horrible. Let's recla- I'm reclaiming it as beauty for blackness, definitely. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I, we have a lot of black swans in Western yes. Australia and, um, I mean, they can be a bit aggressive if you go down to the lake with a, a loaf of bread. They, they can be quite scary um, but beautiful as well. Um, and I guess the other area that I've seen you do a lot of work in to do with race and to do with women, but more young women, is in young women's education and their well-being and their sense of identity and their their experiences of education. 
And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your work in what ended up being called the Black Girls Club and what you discovered there about young women's experiences and what maybe what they need and what they experience in their education. Thank you. I mean, this is this I am absolutely passionate about black girls, black girls and young black women. Why am I passionate about them? Because if I think about what I've just described, which is a black swan, they are really misunderstood. They are misunderstood because they are they are seen as adults. Their child, their girlhood doesn't last long for young black girls. It seems to be a very short-lived experience. And it's not because they've done that, but society sees them as grown-ups. And so in school, they may come across as overconfident. Some may come across as overconfident. And they've been taught to kind of be resilient, be strong, be unemotional. And I think that's the area I'm very interested in. So the um, the girls, Black Girls Club came out of doing some um, discussions and going into schools and really talking to, having the opportunity to talk to young black girls who are about 14 and 15 about what's it like to be a black girl? What's it like to be a black girl in society? And some of the things they talked to me about were just things they'd not talked to kind of an adult like me about, which was, you know, how they are misunderstood, how they need to be able to, um, you know, when they talk about their body, their body is kind of in many ways is more like an adult body, but they're girls and, you know, how boys perceive them and how as black girls, they are misconstrued by their, their black boy peers who want a lighter skinned black girl or they'd want a white girl or they want to be involved sexually with them and they they're more inclined to have uh, to be able to get sexual favors from white girls and black girls all this stuff was talked about and so we wanted to call a name for the for the discussion group and so one of the girls said it's the black girls club and some of the girls it took them a few weeks to really feel comfortable to have this space of black women, black girls, and talk. Because some of them say, well, what about my white friend? That's okay, but not in this space. And so it was a space which was a safe space. They could talk about um, their hair. They could talk about beauty. They could talk about, you know, how sex texting has really impacted on them. They could talk about anything they wanted to in relation to how they're perceived. They could talk about what it's like walking along the road in their particular area and people are curb crawling and thinking they're a prostitute. They could talk about these things. And so that's how it came about. And I was also, I'm also very interested in mental health, mental health of black women, particularly young black women. And I'm very connected to that, definitely, because it's not given much of a seriousness. And when it is, the young women are sectioned as against looked at with therapy and not loads of medication. I've heard you also talk about black girls and women feeling as though they have to minimise or shrink or perform a different kind of an identity as well sometimes yeah. in order to, I don't know, fit in whatever they with whatever they consider is, is normalised or expected. So was that also something that came out of that work with the Black Girls Club? Yes, and I'm, and I'm still continuing to do that work. I've been doing some work with independent schools as well. The term is dumbing down. 
dumbing down to to feel to feel accepted to be accepted so if you're six foot one and your friends are all you know five foot six or seven you're dumbing down to fit into the size also if you are number one in the class but you you don't want to be number one you're dumbing yourself down to fit into whatever the norm is you've got those things going on as well and also you're trying to fit into what people perceive you to be as a black girl so the the kind of reinforcing the stereotype as a young person you really may not know that stereotype but they're going to reinforce that so if you're coming from a middle class family and you're going to a school where there's not many of you which are black people have this preconceived idea what they think you are and so a young person I'm very aware of bought themselves a new coat very lovely new coat the young person's six foot something they're in their teens still at school and one of the young women who is a you know not black said instead of saying oh it looked nice or whatever about the coat they said they look like a gangster now can you imagine how that must feel to a young person who is already a tall individual compared to their others and their coat what they've just spent money on and really love within seconds has been diminished into what that person will think that that this person's wearing is looks like a gangster that in itself is is a is a problem diminished to stereotypes or cultural yeah. tropes yeah and of course then you have this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy absolutely where they think well i need to be like that because that's what they expect me to be so it becomes a whole, whole cycle of what the profile is expected of that particular young person and i am very interested in in, in, in women girls and women people may ask me what about men well yeah there's a lot of research being done on men and especially black boys and black men but the little bit about black girls um not that much so i'm very much passionate about what's going on with black girls and women another line that we often hear is you can't be what you can't see and i know that some of what came out of that work that you've written about is the importance of trusted adults for black girls and black young women uh, like you, perhaps you were in that black girls club for them, someone who is like them and who they're able to talk to in, a, in that safe space. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was, and we talked about anything. I mean, we talked about, and what was nice, the head teachers were able to provide a space for these young women, which was a nice space. We could have sandwiches, you could have a drink, and I'd bring a bag of sweets, and we'd talk about this and that. We'd talk about MPs and what you know who are who who the MPs are members of parliament and they didn't know who they were um, in some of the schools or you talk about you know what who is the person which you would like to kind of talk to if you had a conversation and they could talk about all the boys all the men but they couldn't talk about black women they didn't you know they didn't look through and think oh yeah that black woman or that black woman at all and so those things were very important books and what books to read and what's their aspirations so yeah, it was it was a it was a conversation, and it goes back to the first question you asked. It was about the conversation of differences. Now this hasn't been easy for me neither, because being brought up in a white space with no black people at all, and then coming into a space where there are black people, there is a kind of uh, kind of posture syndrome in relation to myself and how I fit into that with class and blackness and where that means. So my blackness has been progressive and it's been in progress because I've had to learn to be black 
And that may sound absolutely strange, but it's it's absolutely the truth. I've learned to be it. As you talk about your own background, it sounds like, you know, from from when you were a child and you said, why has God made me this colour, to then coming into a space where you're exploring blackness and black women's experiences and you're learning blackness and what does that mean for me? How does that feel for you that it sounds like you kind of felt a little bit in your own growing up life that you didn't fit there or there was something that didn't fit there and then now there's other reasons that you don't fit there's kind of a that discomfortable disconnect even for you in this in it in all the spaces yeah there, there, there is a bit of that um but I think the glue which holds it holds it together for me is class and that's really held it together and I and I and I'm not doing that to de- demonize anybody else's or demean anybody else's class or anything like that. But I think that's that's what helped me to to feel confident. It's that notion of it's a bit kind of controversial, really, I suppose, in some ways. But that's what kept me together. I think. Yeah, I didn't ever feel I want to be. You know, there's some children who have been in the same space as me, and they want to scrub their skin and they want to be white. I've never wanted to be that at all. It's not something which, even as a child, I met. What I've done is always ask the questions. So I've always had the, you know, this this critical concept of ask the question: why and what's going on, and how do we do this? You know, where did that come from? And you talked earlier about the importance of authenticity. I think as well that sort of comfort in your own skin and authenticity. Yeah. Being auth- and that's a really good uh, word, actually, um, Deborah, is um, authentic. And um, there's been times when people have seen me and they don't think, they perhaps insinuate that I'm not, I'm not an authentic black, whatever that means. And so um, we've had conversations about authenticity because there's no, there's no kind of palette where you say, well, this is black because it equals this, this and this. It's black communities. I'm non-white. And so my experiences as a non-white individual in the UK is, is my experiences. My experiences as being non-white in other parts of the world is my experience. And I think that's important, definitely. And I, I do wonder, you know, you, a lot of the work that you seem to do, you said before that you could have had a really easy life. You could have cho- made different choices and and not dealt with difficult questions. But it sounds like you almost pursue these, you know, discom- uncomfortable, difficult scenarios or you're asking critical questions and asking others to ask critical questions. What do you do for yourself to sustain your well-being when you're kind of doing this work that sounds like it's sometimes emotionally laborious or or hard to to be in? How do you sustain yourself? It's, it, it's, it, that's an interesting question. But before I come to that, I think that um, I've learned to do this because you have to go back to my mother. My mother, and when I talk about my mother, I talk about my whiteness, my, my mother who brought me up. She, I was six months old when I was with her, right, six months. So I wasn't with anybody else. And I was handed over in a station, in Paddington Station, from one mother to another. Okay, that's a different story. And so I would say that because, and her Jewishness, she was also faced with a lot of pushback of having a black child, one in her household and two where we lived. There were petitions and all things like that. So I think there was, she was a pioneer for what she was doing. And I learned from her. I think I must have learned aspects of her. For me, how do I look after myself? 
Well, what it's always been is about reading, reading, writing. I've learned to have some very, very deep, close friends. But I suppose my biggest thing is, is the spiritual connection. And I think that's what's helped, that helps to look after me. But I do also do exercise. Exercise is very good for the mind, whether it's running, whether it's boxing, whatever it is. So faith, friendship and exercise. Yeah. Thank you. Well, we are coming towards the end of our time together. So I'm going to move to what I like to call the enlightening round from the French salons, (laughs) which is our final five questions. And the first question is, what's something unexpected that many people might not know about you? Ooh, that I grew up with white people. (laughs) (laughs) That I was adopted, I was was given away as a child in in a station. That's something people don't know about. At six months old. That's, How about that? That one? sounds pretty pretty unique to me, and and definitely something that if people <sighs> haven't had that conversation with you would be would be unexpected. What about something that's currently on your desk? What's currently on my desk? My mobile phone. <laughs> this this will be quick fire. Um, what about someone that inspires you in the work that you do? Yeah, there's a mixture of people in um, African Americans. Like for example, Angela Davis, Bell Hooks. Joyce King, Patricia Collins, Alice Walker, Jeremiah Angelo, and also Harriet Tupman. I think Harriet Tupman is very inspiring, actually. All those people, I think, they, they inspire me. You just sort of listed off quite a few names all at once. What is it about that group that really inspire you in what you do? That it's important to, because if you think about Harriet Tupman, she asks a question. She used to, they all ask questions. All of them ask, so, so who, what, why? where and how, all those questions. And I think no matter what, there's always a solution. There's always a way around to get to where you need to go. And and, I, and I'm known for that. So I think that's, that's an interesting question. So asking difficult and critical questions, dealing in the murkiness, but actually having quite a positive view, a hopeful view about productive progress. Definitely. What about one thing that you have coming up that you're excited about? My new book. <laughs> I think the new book, that's exciting. Well, there's two new books. There's the one which is on gender and um, is the, the one on uh, the handbook on gender and leadership. And then there's the one which is the one you mentioned, which is on sophisticated racism. And then there's a new book, another book, which is going to be in the publishers, which is called Critical Conversations About Race and Educational Leadership and Management. That's going to be in the publishers, hopefully by the end of June. Fantastic. There is nothing quite like the feeling of receiving uh, a new book with your name on the cover. Oh dear, yes. <laughs> and what about if you were to distill your current thinking about education down to its essence, what is one thought or resource that you would leave listeners with? Complexity. And I think complexity and being comfortable with complexity regarding education. And why do I use that terminology? I suppose it's because um, there's no simple solution to education. It is it is very controversial. It's being used as a global way of making lots and lots of money. But at the same time, you can't shortcut. You can't shortcut education. It's a process, and you have to go through that process to be able to learn from one as part of your journey from one part to another. And I think that's really important and the resources to be able to develop critical thinking. And it sounds like your work is often immersed in that world of complexity and critical thinking. Yeah. And that you kind of tussle with that and engage with that, the tangled web perhaps, as you said in that chapter. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, that brings me to the end of my questions, Victoria. 
Thank you so much for joining me today on the Edu Salon. Well, thank you, and I hope it was useful for the listeners. Oh, absolutely. And I think our conversation today has really reminded our audience of the importance of things like a lot of the things actually that this podcast, the Edgy Salon, is all about, about connection, about questioning, about identity, all kinds of aspects of identity, of, of knowing ourselves, of looking at the intersections of the various aspects of identity, of the power of storytelling and of the power of conversation. So thank you again. Thank you for listening to the Edgy Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network by giving this podcast a rating or review and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.